this church this morning. It'd be real help for me and for you if you had uh, that passage open that was read to us a moment ago from 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Uh, it's been a while that we've been in 1 Corinthians, hasn't it? Uh, over the last year and this. Uh, we've really only got a few more weeks um, in this book. After Easter, we will spend uh, three weeks in 1 Corinthians 15, which is a really significant chapter looking at the body resurrection. But we are coming very, very close to, to the end of it. Uh, and they are a couple of challenging weeks uh, that lie ahead of us in terms of concepts and ideas to understand, and not only to understand, but also think about how we might want to go things that we've learned there. Uh, so if there are questions that you have, uh, you'll see if there's a QR code on the bottom of the service out on the sheet, uh, and we'll be more than welcome. I encourage you to, uh, to scan that to send through the questions you might have from today's passage or some of the things that I might say over the course of this morning. I have about a prayer and we'll dive into today's passage together. Dearest Father, we do thank you that in 1 Corinthians we catch a glimpse of what it looks like when a church community loses its grip on love. When it's self-concern concern over our own status and standing that shapes and moves our actions and our dealings with one another. We see, Father, that there is much there for the grief. And yet, Father, when uh, we express love in a way that reflects our trust and our dependence on the Lord Jesus, it is really, truly a glorious thing. We ask that you might teach us this morning what it looks like to follow the way of love in the way in which we share our life together here at church. In Jesus' name we pray. Uh, up on the screen is a still from the 1960s movie adaptation of Lord of the Flies by the British author William Golding. I don't know, perhaps you had to read this book uh, in school, maybe even write some essays on it. Uh, I think that it's still, ha- it's still being uh, crumbed out for kids these days. The book was written in 1954, and it's a tale that follows a group of school-aged boys who are stranded on an uncovered island see uh, the kind of state that they're in uh, already in that photo, uh, and the story follows their disastrous attempts to try and govern themselves. A, a conscience shell, uh, one that a lot of children find early on in the story, develops into a powerful symbol of civilization, of English common sense and good order. That's one of the things that this shell that's been found comes to symbolize. The shell governs the boys' interactions with one another. Both, it's, you know, when they blow into the shell, it emanates this sound that reverberates across the island and calls them all together in their common meetings when they have a common gathering that they need to discuss important matters. But also, for the boy who holds the conscious shell, it authorizes them to speak, to address the gathered community of kids. And it's an honour that's open to anyone. Any of the children, if they hold on to that shell, have the privilege and the honour, the authority to speak to the gathered community. Yet it turns out that even the English common sense and good order uh, that is represented by the shell, I remember watching the movie and the kids uh, make quite a deal about how the English are very good at having rules and exercising them. They've got better rules than anyone else, uh, they declare. Even the English common sense and good order just represented by that culture ultimately 
isn't sufficient to prevent the boys from descending into wild and even murderous savagery. Now, I guess it's not too dissimilar from the vibe that you might pick up working through the letter to the Corinthian church. It's a human trait, not just pre-teen English boys. In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, in place of the conscious, Paul identifies that it is love that is the only thing sufficient to unify the church community and properly order its use of its various spiritual gifts, particularly to organize their use of speech. Without love, even the most apparently spiritual forms of speech and speaking will devolve into the kind of chaos which can actually tear a community apart. Uh, simply possessing a spiritual gift, Paul writes in one Corinthians, doesn't authorize you to use it however you see it. Only love for others is sufficient to safely order that speech in a way that operates for the good of the church. And that's the kind of idea that Paul is really drawing our attention to in our opening verses in today's passage. Have a look with me at chapter 14, and we'll kick off there in, in that opening section, uh, verses 1 to 5. Uh, and um, verses 1 to 5 is probably going to occupy a, a disproportionate amount of our time uh, this morning. So if we're three quarters of the way through, and we're still knocking off verse 5, I'm not going to be doing an equal amount uh, of the verses that follow. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands it. They are the mysteries by the Spirit, but the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves. But the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless some interprets so that the church may be edified. Paul here compares two different distinct kinds of speech, two different kinds of speech. Tongues on the one hand, and prophecy. The former tongues, it seems, had most captivated the imaginations of the Corinthians, which is, I think, why Paul spent so much time focusing on it in this chapter, even though it's not the kind of speech that he wishes they would excel the most. Though it's prophecy, quite clearly, that Paul wishes they would be most eager to exercise and influence with each other. And it's worth noting, first of all, that both these forms of speech, speaking in tongues and in prophecy, could be expressed by anyone to whom the Spirit gives those gifts. Unlike other officers like an apostle or a teaching overseer of the church, both tongues and prophecy could be exercised by anyone within the church community, whether they were old, young, man or woman, slave or free. And yet, love orders the use of these two gifts, tongues and prophecy, in very different ways. Love orders 
what's the use of these two things, these two kinds of speech very First notice here that tongues and prophecy are actually addressed to different audiences. Did you notice that? They're, they're being addressed, they're addressing different groups of people. Speaking in tongues, we read there, is addressed to God alone. In fact, we're going to skip ahead to a few verses later on in verse 13. You see there that tongues, speaking in tongues, is likened to prayer, or in verse 15, speaking in tongues is likened to song. Both prayer and song are addressed in praise and thanks of God. It's, it's God to whom tongues, whether in prayer or song, are addressed. Now, it's true that in the early church, God's Spirit sometimes, like in the book of Acts, enabled believers to speak in various human languages that they had never learnt, so that the news of Jesus could spread quickly across racial and national boundaries. But in this instance, in 1 Corinthians, speaking in tongues seems to have been a way in which individual believers were moved by God's Spirit to offer praise to God Himself. Using languages, speaking in tongues, but they hadn't just taught themselves. Prophecy, on the other hand, we're told, whatever prophecy exactly might be, was addressed not to God, but to other people. The difference between speaking in tongues and prophecy wasn't only, though, a matter of who it's addressed to. That's one difference. But it was also a matter of who benefited from these different kinds of speech. Who benefited from speaking in tongues and speaking in prophecy with difference as well. Uh, have a look with me again at verses 3 to 4. We'll just reread these verses. Speaking in tongues and prophecy benefited different people. Verse 3 we read, but the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies or builds up themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. As a form of speech that expressed itself in praising God, it seems that tongues were encouraging only for the one who was actually doing the speaking. Tongues edify, that is, tongues strengthen and encourage only the one who speaks. And yet, it remained just another mystery to everyone else who wanted While speaking in tongues weren't a form of speech that could be easily ordered towards loving others, verse 3 insists that the very purpose of prophetic speech is to benefit others rather than the one who speaks. What is it about prophecy, though, as a form of speech that makes it especially fitting for loving others, for the strengthening of others, for the encouragement of others, for the comforting of other people? I think typically we've had a tragically narrow view of what prophetic speech might involve, what forms it might take. Did you hear for those Harry Potter fans? Of Trelawney, Professor Trelawney, uh, very kind of key idea of prophecy that is threaded throughout the Harry Potter stories that I think has probably had a disproportionate, these kind of ideas of prophecy have had a disproportionate impact on shaping what we think of when we read the prophecy in the scriptures. As if it's all about, it's all about obscure visions and dreams and complicated riddles 
about some distant and mysterious future events that we ourselves might never ever get to see or witness or partake in. And I think that idea or that thought of prophecy has had a disproportionate impact on our reality over the last 30 years. While it's true that there were many Old Testament prophets who did three dreams and visions, the seek of Daniel, who we looked at last year, and dreams and visions that sometimes concern the future, sometimes concern the present. I don't think that that's what is the defining characteristic of prophecy, either in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. In fact, Moses, who was described as being the greatest of all Old Testament prophets, was considered a superior prophet precisely because his prophecy wasn't dependent on receiving it from God through visions or dreams. Do you remember this from the Numbers passage we read out just a little while ago? God was speaking to Miriam and Aaron and Moses. Interestingly, there was a bit of a one Corinthians vibe going on in that passage, wasn't there? With Miriam and Aaron thinking, aren't we also prophets? Yeah, shouldn't we get a little bit of the credit, the status, and the honor, not just this Moses guy? You can see that the, the kind of issues that plague the Corinthian church were there right at the start. But then what God wrote or spoke, he said, Where there is a pro- when there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly, and not in riddles. When Moses acted as a prophet, he wasn't dependent on but on a clear, specific understanding and knowledge of God that he, in the Old Testament, was uniquely Now, in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter recognises that in the past, Old Testament prophets were often dependent upon visions and dreams to make sense of the future that God had planned for them. You can look at it there, look, I'll put a bunch of verses there for you to follow up later, from 1 Peter chapter 1, for instance. But the believers nowadays, Peter says, believers now, have the prophetic message made clear and complete to them in the teaching of the apostles. We don't have God's word ambiguous, uncertain, hazy about what direction it might yet follow in. What defines the essence of prophecy is not how the content is conveyed, i.e. through a vision or a dream about the future or about the present. Rather, what defines prophecy is that the message is applied for the strengthening, the encouraging, and the comfort of God's people in their current, particular circumstances. Prophecy isn't simply a mysterious delivery message, um, sorry, a delivery method by which God communicates some exclusive content to his people that isn't available anywhere else. Indeed, even in the Old Testament, prophecy often no new content at all. Sometimes prophecy includes no new information as such. Uh, rather than revealing anything mysterious or new, for example, think about the prophecies of Jeremiah. Some of Jeremiah's prophecy, in fact, much of Jeremiah's prophecy, is simply a reapplication of the age old commandments that God had already given his people through the prophet Moses before they entered into the promised land. I've got there on the sheet a reference to Jeremiah chapter 7, where 
Jeremiah's prophecy, the content of his prophecy, is effectively a reallocation of some of the Ten Commandments. Maybe not exactly what we imagine when we think about prophecy. Or in the book of Acts in the New Testament, two New Testament prophets, Judas and Silas, likewise are simply reapplying something that the apostles had taught about sexual immorality, food sacrifice to idols. They took that what the apostles had taught and they applied it to the unique circumstances that the Gentile or the non-Jewish church faced in the city of Antioch. The essence of prophecy isn't all focused on visions and dreams. The essence of prophecy is simply taking what God has spoken to whatever means or form and applying it to the particular circumstances that the church community might find themselves facing. Which, friends, is pretty much what Lauren did for us last week. You might remember it being in the same connection. Of course, and Lauren took what God was teaching us in the scriptures and applied it to some aspect of our shared life together for our encouragement, for our strengthening. That's what we often have the opportunity to do when we get together in our midweek growth groups, isn't it? We read from the scriptures and we speak for each other's strengthening and encouragement and comfort the things of the scriptures. When Paul describes here the one who prophesies as being greater than the one who speaks in tongues, one of those that go in verse 5, it's not because prophecy is a more spiritually prestigious gift, but simply because prophecy is better ordered towards the loving of others with whom we are speaking. Paul actually goes on in verses 6 to 12 to outline several characteristics of speaking in tongues that typically limit its suitability for expressing love towards others. We'll go through this a little bit more quickly. Uh, let's have a look at verse 6. Paul here is reflecting on the limitations that speaking in tongues have for loving others. Verse 6. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, that is, other languages, what good will I be to you, unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as a pipe or a harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if a trumpet does not sound a clear who will get ready for the battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Though it is a legitimate, legitimate form of spiritual speech, Paul insists that tongues are simply too indistinct, too indefinite, and too ineffectual to be of much help when it comes to expressing love towards others. If others can't distinguish between any of the words that I'm saying, if others can't register that I'm even specifically addressing them, then I may as well just be talking to the clouds. And if others can't comprehend what it is that we're actually calling them to do, then we can talk for as long as we like, but we'll be utterly ineffectual 
in actually motivating others to take action. But even worse, even worse than simply being indistinct, ineffectual, or indefinite in our speech, Paul warns that our speech, speaking in tongues, might even become alienating for others. Have a look at me at verse 10. Verse 10. Paul writes, Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, and yet none of them are without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try and excel in those that build up the church. Paul was suggesting here that we can speak in such a way in our gathered life together that rather than lovingly strengthening, encouraging, and comforting others, we effectively make each other into foreigners. Rather than growing in unity, we can instead use our speech in a way that effectively creates barriers between ourselves. Paul concludes today's passage by dwelling on this idea by reflecting on three concrete ways that even spiritual forms of speech, like speaking in tongues, might prove to be alienating rather than unifying, loving, Firstly, while praying or singing in tongues might elevate and lift our own spirits by themselves, tongues are insufficient to even fully edify the person who is speaking. Did you notice that there? Have a look at me at verse 12. And I'm actually sorry, I'll go from verse 13. Alright, for this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they might interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue that is in another language, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. And it seems as if the Corinthians had a bad that ecstatic spiritual experiences were sufficient to sustain them in living the Christian life. They just had enough ecstatic experiences that really gave them a spiritual buzz that made them feel close to God. That was sufficient for living a Christian life. But Paul suggests here, even our own spiritual strengthening, encouragement and comfort will be compromised if our minds and our understanding are left ultimately unengaged. It's interesting, isn't it? The central way Paul says in this chapter, the central way that God has chosen to strengthen, to encourage, and to comfort us is not through our own solo spiritual experiences, but through lovingly being impressed by one another. I remember once as a teenager, another of my family members expressing their confusion and their frustration about church life, the church that we were a part of at the time, and the apparent absence of the more seemingly miraculous spiritual gifts at our church. Surely there are lectionaries, surely there is some critical spiritual resource that's being held from us 
by the fact that we don't experience these gifts like speaking tongues in our service. But friends, that's not what Paul says, is it? It is not our solo, individual, spiritual experiences that strengthen, encourage, and comfort us. But we ourselves, speaking words of strengthening, comfort, and encouragement for one another. God has designed the Christian life that way, so that we grasp we are a body that is interdependent on one another. The Christian life is not a solo spiritual life. It can't be that way. In and of themselves, tongues, even speaking the most spiritually transcendent languages of angels, will ultimately fail to strengthen, encourage, or comfort even the one who's speaking with respect to their mind and their understanding. Friends, we are interdependent on one another. And I know that there are probably some of us who long that if only we had a more elevated experience of the spiritual life ourselves, the Christian life would be better. We would be more secure, more steadfast in the Christian life. Not so. God has given us one another for that strengthening. That's how God has decided to work. Uh, continuing on, let's have a look at verses 16 to 19, where we, descri- we, we see described for us another kind of alienation that can come about from the use of tongues. Uh, verse 16 is where we'll pick it up. Alright, otherwise, when you are praising God in the Spirit, how can someone else who is now put in the position of an inquirer say, Amen? To your thanksgiving. Since I do not know what you are saying, you are giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. Whatever genuine but limited benefit some of themselves may receive from speaking in tongues, to do so in public church gatherings will most likely result in alienating other believers from yourself. In fact, to speak in tongues that no one else can understand or make sense of will leave even other believers feeling as if they are spiritually clueless, feeling like spiritual newbies, inquirers, those who don't understand what's going on. It'll exclude them from even being able to say amen to the prayers that you're offering. It'll exclude them from even being able to join you in affirming the thanks and the prayers that you're offering to Think about it this way. To speak in a way that prohibits or even limits other people joining in with you actually robs God of the thanks and praise that others wish to give you. We we might pray in the most spiritually elevated terms, but if it's impossible for someone else to pray at the end of that prayer, Amen, yes, I agree with that prayer, then God's being robbed of the praise of others. All because we want to elevate our own praise of God. That's one of the reasons why, even though you might feel sometimes that it doesn't feel so spiritually authentic to me, that's why we have common prayers. That's why sometimes we have prayers that are written out that we can all pray together. It's a humbling reminder that we are offering our praise to God as a body, as a community. We share together in the same thanks and praise that we direct to God. 
It's why it's important that music and singing in church be familiar and singable. That that's prioritised over a musician's own individual self-expression. That's why we don't have performance, concert performance in church. Perhaps we have an occasion, uh, an item, in which one person seeks to edify and with others, but that's why our singing isn't fundamentally performance. It's something that we share with so that we might direct praise to God with one voice. And finally, tongues, even speaking in the most heavenly languages and matters, tongues can ironically, even end up alienating people from God Himself. That's a certain thought, isn't it? Paul illustrates this danger by quoting from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Uh, glance with me to verse 20. Uh, actually, I'll read it from verse 8. Paul writes, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than ten thousand words in a tongue. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like kids. In regard to evil, the infants, but in your thinking, the adults. In the law, speaking of Isaiah, it is written, with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, God says, I will speak to this people Israel. But even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues then are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. What's being spoken about? Uh, during the time of the prophet Isaiah, from the time that this little quote was taken, God's people Israel had decided, as a nation, that they would ignore God's word. They decided that they would no longer trust, depend upon, believe God's word to them. They decided to trust in their own strength, their own cleverness. And as a result, God declares that he would no longer speak to them. Himself. But instead, he would only speak to Israel through their enemies, via the foreign tongues of those who would come and conquer them. In Isaiah, Israel's failure to understand what God is saying to them was a sign that they were alienated from him. It was a sign of his judgment upon their stubborn unbelief. I think that's what it means when this passage says that tongues are a sign for unbelievers. Not that they're assigned to help unbelievers. They're a sign of judgment upon unbelievers. For if we can't understand what God is saying to us, if He is a foreigner to us, we are alienated from Him, aren't we? In contrast, prophecy is a sign that God actually wishes to be understood by us. A sign that He wants us to understand Him, to trust Him, and to actually turn to Him. Now, have a look at me at those closing verses from verse 22. Chapter 14, verse 22. I'll read from halfway through. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues, and inquirers or unbelievers come in, 
will or not that place, will or not say that you're out of your mind, but if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by the Lord, as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among us. All the same here, a truly spiritual speech, truly loving speech, is that which seeks to make God's word clear for others, for them. Isn't that what's happening in that last little section? As people prophesy, those who are unbelievers or uninitiated who come in will understand what God is saying to them and respond in faith and trust. True loving speech is that which makes God's word clear for others for their good, not that which serves our own interests or views God's words in favour of our own spiritual self-expression. Friends, love alone is able to order our speech in a way that pleases and honours God. Apart from the loving ambition, the loving ambition that we might strengthen one another, encourage one another, and comfort others with our speech. Church life is certainly the same to the kind of chaos that the Corinthian church had been sending into. The kind of chaos that we most naturally associate with a deserted island full of unsupervised pre-teenage boys, like we see in that world. And in fact, as we come to the second half of chapter 14, that's exactly what's happening. Disorder and chaos has broken out amongst the church in Corinth in a way that is stopping people loving one another in the kinds of things that they speak to each other. Friends, at the bottom of your service sheet there, I've included a little grayed out box that I'm going to include there for coming weeks as well. And it's got a question there. One of the things that Paul says midway through today's passage is that we should eagerly desire to prophesy, to speak words that strengthen, encourage, and comfort others. How might we do that? How might we eagerly desire to speak words of prophecy for the building of others? Well, I've put in a suggestion there that you've got to Perhaps before you come to church every Sunday or before you head to work, you can simply ask yourself that question. Perhaps you could be glancing at that question throughout the time of Bible reading, throughout the time that I'm talking, and ask yourself, who might I strengthen? Who might I be encouraging? Who might I be comforting? With the words that come on today's passage. And if you come up short with no answers, then instead of asking yourself that question, Ask God that question. Pray. Ask Lord, who might I strengthen? Who might I comfort? Who might I encourage? For in the end, all exercise of spiritual gifts and spiritual speech depends on God's giving. That's why it's a gift. Ask God that question and wait upon Him to show yourself to love through the gift. Dearest Father, in our anxieties, 
in the midst of our pride, in the midst of our longing to be heard, in the midst of our uncertainty about whether others notice us, we can be quick to speak. Or perhaps, Father, we can be loud in our speech. Or perhaps, Father, because of anxieties, we might be quiet, we might refrain from ever speaking. Father, we ask that you might work by your Spirit to change that those tendencies within us. That we might long, that we might eagerly desire to speak words that strengthen, encourage, and comfort others. That you might build your people rather than see them torn apart. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Our friends, we're going to turn to respond to God.